And I'd like to thank all of you for being here today uh, to join us at Cross Point Church. We're glad that you're here. My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. A few weeks ago, you may remember that um, we as pastors asked you about some subjects that you would like to hear preached about over the next bunch of weeks. And um, so we, we gave you a, we included in the program a sort of a half sheet, and the idea was that you would submit to us, I was sort of like, a, you know, I would like to hear a sermon about this. And we, we threw out some ideas, and about 30 of you responded and told us what you wanted to hear uh, from God's Word. And I was so excited when I learned that the most popular subject that you wanted to hear about was politics. It also happens to be National Sarcasm Month. So, for the next three weeks, we are going to talk about what the Bible says about politics. The question is, what does the Bible say about politics? And so for the next three weeks, we're going to explore what the Bible says about politics. And then on Tuesday, November 8th, we're all going to vote. I'd like to ask you a couple questions myself before we begin. How many of you are actually enjoying this election season with all the tension and drama and everything else? Raise your hand if you're enjoying all of this. Oh, okay. How many of you are bothered or annoyed by all of it and just want to get it over with? A few more. How many of you don't even care about it? All right. How many of you love to bring it up and talk about it with other people? Okay, some of you. And how many of you think that preachers and churches should just steer clear of politics and all of that? (laughs) I love that. Okay. Well, we are going to be talking about politics the next three weeks. And one thing that I want to make clear is that, uh, well, first of all, we're not going to be able to cover everything that the Bible says about politics in three weeks. There's no way. Um, But one other thing I'd like to say before we start is that the goal of this series is not to persuade you to vote one way or the other. I want to make that clear at the outset. Pastor Scott and I are not scheming behind closed doors uh, about how we can get you to vote one way or the other. I don't know who he's voting for. He doesn't know who I'm voting for. That's not what this is about at all. Uh, In fact, if I'm being honest with you, I don't really care how you vote. I really don't. Um, What I care about is that you vote. I do care that you vote. Um, Every single one of us, according to God's word, which we'll see, should be engaged in politics. We should be engaged in politics on both a local and a national level. You should be able to make an informed decision when you vote. You should know what each candidate stands for and whether or not they're trustworthy and what kind of character they have. This is why we've provided you with a summary, which is at the information table and which we've put in the program in recent weeks, of each candidate's position on important issues. That's why we've provided that for you, so that we can just get you started in a direction of knowing what each candidate stands for as far as policies and positions and social issues and even even religious issues to some degree. I, I, I really don't care very much who you vote for. I care how you live. I care about how you live your life. That's what's important to me. That's what I believe is important to God. And the reason is because according to God, for us as human beings, as we think about who we are, what our political positions and our political ideals and our our political opinions, our political affiliations are not what define us as people. What defines us as human beings is that we're created 
as uniquely spiritual and physical beings in the image of God to reflect his glory back to him in this world, to show the world what God is really like. That's who we are as people, as followers of Jesus. We are redeemed sinners who have been bought back, purchased through the blood of Christ and adopted into God's family. That's the most important thing about us. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you, not what you believe about social issues and political issues. And I want to make that very clear. And that's the reason that I can say I don't care that much who you vote for. I care how you live as in the political environment. That's what's important. So uh, let's not forget about that. So the question is, what, what does the Bible say about politics? And we're going to dive right in this morning. We're going to look at a lot of scripture, beginning with Romans chapter 13. And Romans chapter 13 provides us with one of the uh, most plain and clear um, Passages of, of teaching in the New Testament about how we should relate to the powers that be. And so we are going to begin reading from Romans chapter, the end of Romans chapter 12, verse 21, into Romans chapter 13. And this is Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now I want to pause there for a second because Romans 12, 21 serves as a bridge between Romans 12 and 13. It connects Romans chapter 12, which is about transformation, with Romans 13, which is about what the transformed life looks like. In fact, Romans 12 is is a lot about that too. But it's a very, very key verse, and we're going to come back to it in a little bit. In fact, let me just say this right right away. If there was, I can't, I actually can't even think of a better way to summarize everything the Bible says about how Christians should relate to politics than this. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is what the Bible says about politics and how Christians should relate to politics in general. That's it. And now we get more specific. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So here's what I think this passage is, is saying. It, it, just like to summarize it briefly, I think what it's saying is obey, respect, and honor the people that God has placed in power. That's the first thing we need to understand. Obey and respect and honor the people that God has placed in power. Who is God placed in power? Everyone who's in power. That's what the text says. The first thing we have to establish is that God created politics. Politics is not inherently evil. Institutions are not inherently evil or man-made or corrupt. And it's not something we should be avoiding or be indifferent to. 
We need to understand that. The very simple truth, according to this text, is that as followers of Jesus, we must obey and respect and honor and submit ourselves to the powers that be. That's what the old King James uh, says here, the powers that be. Earthly powers, earthly authorities, earthly governors, earthly presidents, earthly emperors, kings, what have you. Why is it so important for followers of Jesus to honor, respect, and obey the powers that be, especially when they do not necessarily represent what we value, right? That's, we're going we're gonna to talk about that today. Why is it important? For starters, and this is really, this might surprise some of you, but everybody who's in power is there because God wants them to be, including our current president, including the current political leaders in our local uh, and, and national political system. They're all there because God put them there. And he put them there for our good, according to the text. I'd like you to think about that for a minute. They're in power because God gave them power. They won because God gave them the win. God has put them in power. He's established their power for our good. God has created government from from very early on in, in human history as his tool to preserve peace and order and to protect the world from chaos. Now, obviously, governments don't always accomplish those goals because governments are full of people and people can do bad things. People can be corrupt and they can be corrupted. Spiritual powers and agents that we can't see can use governments and leaders to try and stop God from doing what he wants to do. There are a lot of reasons that governments go bad, but government as an institution is not bad. It's from God. And everyone who's in power is there because God has put them there. Now, is there ever a case or a reason for followers of Jesus to resist the authority of the government? Yes, there is. And we'll, we'll talk about that specifically next week. But we can't start the conversation there because God doesn't start the conversation there. God doesn't... That's not the, that's not the predominant teaching. That's not what it's mostly about. It's not about when can we disobey? When can we resist? When can we rebel? When can we complain? I'm sorry, you're, not gonna fi- you're just not going to find that as, as the predominant teaching of the Scripture. And maybe what is most surprising about what we just read in Romans 13 is this. The audience, the, pe- the people that Paul is writing to in Romans chapter 13, the people God is writing to, it is a small Christian community in the imperial city of Rome, Okay? And in this day and age, Christians were seen as a radical offshoot of Judaism. They were a small minority, consistently mistrusted, and they had no political representation to speak of at all. this That's who Paul's writing to here. In other words, the political climate that Jesus' followers found themselves in was not a friendly one. Taxation was out of control. People were rioting. During this time, because the tax burden was upsetting their way of life, it was crushing to some people, which is to put it mildly, and the general attitude of government officials towards Christians and churches at this time was one of suspicion, fear, and hostility. So, so please don't think that, well, they, the world was different back then. Everyone loved Christians. The government was for Christianity. Not the case. And into that environment, God says very plainly, without any conditions here, Submit yourself to the powers that be because I've given them their power. They're in power because of me. I've put them in power for your good. Now let's look at another passage together, which I think you'll find to be similar 
in, in its content. And that would be Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Paul is writing to his protege, Titus, who's leading a church. And this, or a group of churches. And this is what uh, we read there. Remind them. Who's them? That would be the, the people in the churches. Or it would be us. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Here's the answer. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. That's one of the, we just read one of the richest, profound, most profound descriptions of the gospel that we have in the New Testament. And sometimes we forget that it's attached to an instruction about how we should relate to political leaders. And here's what I think the point is of Titus 3, 3 1 through 7. In addition to what we already read in Romans uh, 13, which is obey political powers, the powers that be, we read this, avoid quarreling over politics, instead focus on doing good to others. That's how I think we could summarize this text as it relates to to politics. Avoid quarreling over politics and instead devote yourselves to good works. I think it's very telling and even fascinating that in this text, God chose through his through his servant Paul to connect submission to authorities people in political power with the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. What is the relationship between those two things? What is the relationship between our attitude towards the powers that be and the gospel? That's what we're given here. Right? What's the relationship? Now, verse cha- verse 8, which is a really kind of a verse that we would just glaze over, which says these things are profitable for people. Right? These things are excellent and profitable for people. These things, in verse 8, it gives us the motive for obedience to the governing authorities. It points us back to verses 1 through 7 when it says these things. Okay? In other words, the reason that followers of Jesus must live a quiet, submissive life in relationship to the government, and the reason we're to be ready for every good work, and the reason we're not to speak evil of people, and we're to to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and kind, and all of that, is this. Here's the reason. We were fools once. We were disobedient. 
We were spiteful. We were quarrelsome. We were hostile to people we didn't agree with and people who weren't like us. That's what we used to be. And according to the gospel, we can't, we're not that way anymore. We've been changed from the inside out. We can't live that way anymore. We can't go back to that. We can't go back to disobedience. We can't go back to quarreling. We can't go back to being hostile to, towards all the people that we disagree with. That is not the way of Christ and his people. That's the connection. That's not who we are anymore. And I would add, we can't go back to an entitlement mentality where we, where we act like the government owes us something. That's not who we are. We have a responsibility to the world, which we've been talking about over the last couple of months. We are to cultivate a visible presence in the world, bearing visible fruit from, a, from genuine faith in Jesus. And that visible fruit finds expression in the way we talk about politics. Our faith in God must come out in the way we talk about political candidates even, and elected officials. If we're going to take the mission of Jesus seriously, which is making disciples, we have to possess a visibly distinct way of life. And who is that life for? Is it for God? Sure, of course it is. Is it for the strength of the church? Yes. But guess who else it's for? According to verse 8, it's for people. Okay? And that word people, in the original language, means people everywhere, especially people outside of the church, outsiders. In other words, the way that we, re- the, the way that we live, the way that we talk, the way that we talk about po- uh, people in political power in particular— And whether or not we respect them, honor them, submit to their authority, okay, all of that has everything to do with our witness to outsiders. The Apostle Paul is making a very clear point here. If you live this way because of the gospel and how Jesus Christ has given himself for you on the cross, and that changes your relationships, and it changes how you talk about politics, it changes how you talk and how you treat people who disagree with you, that is excellent and profitable for outsiders, for people who have not come to faith in Christ yet. That's what he's saying. God isn't calling us to this distinct way of life with you know gentleness, honor, peace, good works, not quarreling and all that, so that we'll become better people. That's not the point. That's not the goal. He's calling us to this way of life as a way to display his goodness and his power and his subversive, everlasting kingdom to outsiders. That's what this is about. So when Paul uses the word profitable in verse 8, he doesn't simply mean, this will be good for everyone. He means that if Christians are living this way, and which is very countercultural, by the way, not many people are living this way. Very few. Even among Christians, maybe. But if Christians are living this way and talking this way in the political realm, God will use it to bring other people out of darkness and into the light of Jesus Christ. Okay, this is about clothing yourself with Christ so that people in the world, when they see and hear you, they see and hear Jesus. And this is where we, as a church, and as disciples of Jesus, have an opportunity to stand out. This is an opportunity for us to display the utter uniqueness 
and beauty of Jesus Christ to the world. Think about the think about the climate, the political climate, the social environment we live in. We live in a world today, in a, in a, in a, in a country where people are suspect of everything police officers do. There is a movement, an entire movement, okay, that are driven by hostility towards law enforcement professionals and other elected officials. Police officers under tremendous scrutiny today. All right, they, uh, many people assume the worst about them. The media cherry picks what to tell us about their work and about their successes and failures and about their motives and all of those things. Christians should take no part in this whatsoever. None. In fact, we should stand behind law enforcement professionals, support them, bless them, thank them, encourage them, and let them know that we are ready to... to ready to submit to their authority and help them and support them in the work that they've been called to do. And quite frankly, according to the New Testament, they've been called to do it by God. This is part of the powers that be. This is how, what God has established to, to maintain peace, to keep the world from falling into chaos. I mean, are police officers um, perfect? Of course not. They're people too, like us. But the church should take no part in the culture's um, attitude in general towards law enforcement professionals. In fact, I know that there are people in this church who have taken this seriously. They have gone to the police department and dropped off donuts or pastries. They have gone to the police department and just to say thank you for what you do. A police officer who is, his kids go to my kid's school, came to me one day and said, I think someone from your church came into the, our department the other day and they brought uh, a treat and they just wanted to say thank you for what we do. And he was deeply impacted by that. He's brought it up on a number of occasions. He was really encouraged. I know that the West Dallas Police Department is encouraged anytime anyone uh, sends them a card, sends them food, just drops by to, to give them a word of encouragement. It goes a very long way because they don't get that very often. Think about IRS agents. IRS agents. Do, how do we feel about them? Generally speaking, are they part of this powers that be? Yes, they are. Should we submit to them? Yes, we should. Should we cooperate with them? Yes. It's not popular. We, but we should, we cannot go along with the world who says that we should assume the worst about them. We should serve them. We should submit to them. We should not treat them with contempt and withhold as much as possible from them. We should accommodate them. We should honor and respect them. We should go out of our way to do good to our civil servants. So I'd like to ask you a couple questions. I want you to think about this. First question is, who are the authorities I'm called to respect, honor, and submit to? Who are they? Uh, <laughs> some of us don't know. We don't even know who our alderman is or our, the alderwoman. Who's, we don't know who our, our local authorities are. We don't know the name of our mayor. We might not really know or care. Second question is, what is my attitude towards them? If my attitude is not one of honor or respect or submission, why? Why? 
Why is that? And, and lastly, how can I, as a follower of Jesus, demonstrate or practice respect, honor, and submission to these authorities, even if I disagree with them or don't like them? <laughs> how can I do that? Because that's my calling. I'm a disciple first. This is about, this is about being transformed into the image of Jesus. You know that, right? This is about us living the Jesus life, the Jesus way in the world. And it's extremely countercultural. I don't see people doing this. I mean, maybe the people who are doing it are doing it secretly, and that's fine, discreetly. That's probably good. But is it us? Are we the ones doing it? Are we leading the way when it comes to blessing the powers that be? And honoring them and respecting them and, and giving them what, what we owe them. Because God has placed them in the, in the power they have. He's given them the power they have for our good. Now I'd like to explore one final question this morning and we'll land on this point. And the question I'm sure you've, you've been thinking about already or maybe you've thought about before is, what should we do when we feel discriminated against by the powers that be? What should we do when we feel mistreated or when we are mistreated or put down or ignored or discriminated against by people in power? It's a great question, and it was as relevant in the first century as it is today. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter takes it head on, and this is what he says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, that should sound familiar by now. It's the third passage that starts that way whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. By the way, the emperor at the time of this writing, was Nero, who was notorious for mistreating Christians. Peter goes on, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, another profound gospel exclamation right on the heels of instruction of how we as Christians should live in the political environment we find ourselves in. So here's how I would summarize this passage 
Be ready to suffer for the benefit of others. What does the Bible say about politics? Right? What does it say about politics? It says, Obey, respect, honor, and submit to the powers that be. It says, Avoid quarreling over politics and instead do good to others. It says, Be ready to suffer for the benefit of others. So if the question is, Why should I respect and honor and obey the powers that be? Or or, or why should I be ready to suffer? The reason is, Christ suffered unjustly at the hands of political leaders and religious leaders. You knew that already, didn't you? He was innocent, yet fairly tried by people who were power hungry. He was innocent, and yet sentenced to death by a governor who could not find any reason to execute Jesus, but didn't want to riot on his hands. At every turn, Jesus submitted himself to the powers that be. He did not fight the soldiers who arrested him. He didn't complain when he was falsely accused by the Jewish authorities. He did not pay back insult for insult or evil for evil. He entrusted himself to God, knowing that God established the powers that be, and it was God's will for him to suffer unjustly under their power. That was God's will for Christ, and guess what? It's God's will for us. This is God's will. It says so right in the text. Jesus gives us the supreme model of how we should relate to the powers that be. And the model is this. Undeserved suffering for the benefit of others. Or maybe we could say it this way. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Locally here in West Dallas, we are working currently... And when I say we, I mean Dave Weiss, by the way, with city officials and city employees and government agents. And it has been challenging. It's even been frustrating at times. We need to be praying for our city workers, for our city inspectors, for our aldermen, for our mayor. We moved here to be a blessing to this community, to all of our communities, no matter where you drive here from. A big part of that and a big part of our witness, a big part of our mission is how we respond when we are unfairly treated by our city. Did you know that? Peter goes on, by the way, in chapter 3, and this is really, it's just really clear. In chapter 3, we've we've talked about this text before. This is really difficult to swallow, but please hear this. Okay, he's not specifically talking about politics here. He's talking about everyday life, and he says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Then he goes on to quote an Old Testament passage which says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And when people see you living this countercultural lifestyle, they will eventually ask about it. Peter assumes that. He goes on to say, when people ask you for the hope that you have, when they see you suffering unjustly, and still submitting yourself and honoring and respecting the people who are causing you to suffer, they will wonder about that. They'll wonder, why aren't you trying to get them back? Why aren't you complaining more? Why aren't you, you know... 
taking vengeance. And then we're to point them to Christ who suffered for us at the hands of corrupt politicians. So when people do evil against us, when they falsely accuse us, when they discriminate against us or ignore us or however they mistreat us, we're to bless them. We're to, we're to seek and pursue peace. We're to be passionate about what is good and full of hope. We're not to speak words of fear and bitterness and cynicism and evil against government officials. We're not to assume the worst or give in to the propaganda of fear and apocalypse. Like, if this person is elected, the world's going to end. We should take no part in that. Because whoever is elected, their kingdom will not stand. We're not to play the blame game. We're to speak words of peace, words of hope, words of love, words of respect and honor, words of gentleness and kindness and confidence. We should be known for our good works. We should be a blessing to people and expect nothing in return from them. That is how you overcome evil. That is what makes us tough and resilient as God's people when we lose or think we lose an election. So this election is not ultimately about who you vote for and who wins. Whoever wins is going to win because God gave them the win. This election is ultimately about Jesus Christ advancing his kingdom in the world through his people. It's about Jesus winning. It's about Jesus winning more and more people with the words and actions of his followers, living counterculturally in a political and social environment that's hostile to us. Here's the principle I want you to remember today and over the next few weeks as this election cycle comes to a close. It's very simple, and it's so huge, and it's revolutionary, and we see it in every text we read today and all over the life of Jesus and his disciples when the powers that be questioned them or challenged them or discriminated against them or mocked them or imprisoned them or worse. And here it is. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It doesn't matter who gets elected on November 8th. Their kingdom will not last Their agenda one day will be forgotten. Whatever evil intentions they have will not stand. And so for that reason and more, we don't have to worry when someone who's hostile to our values and our ideals and our beliefs gets all the power because God has all the power. He is sovereign. He is totally in control. And he's going to win. And he already has. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, his kingdom is advancing. No one, no power, not even the gates of hell can overcome the church of Jesus Christ or stop the church of Jesus Christ from advancing his kingdom. God's kingdom is the only one that will stand and our King Jesus Christ will reign on his throne forever. So as we think politically, as we're challenged politically, as we enter into conversations and debates, as you get sucked into arguments with people at work, in your neighborhood, and in your home maybe, just remember, whoever becomes president of the United States, and and, 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 you know what, our whole nation, in all the powers that be, our whole nation is a drop in a bucket 
in God's eyes. A drop in a bucket. Let's not forget who he is and who we are. We are to be living for his kingdom. So do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that when we were your enemies at just the right time, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. God, you saw our desperate condition apart from you. People who were wandering from you, people full of envy, jealousy, hostility, even hate. And you had compassion on us. You showed mercy to us. You sent your son as a man to live in perfect obedience to you, to be crucified on a cross, humiliated in public, mocked by the powers that be. But their kingdom will not stand, God. Only yours will last forever. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray that this, over the next few weeks, as we think about how our nation may change politically and socially and other ways too, God, we, we want to be confident and we want to stand on your promises, not on the promises of a political candidate. So we ask that you would remind us who you are and what you've said and that our witness would stand out. The way we talk about politics, the way we treat people who disagree with us, God, may the light of Christ shine through us so that more and more people can experience the joy of your kingdom, which has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Please bow your heads as I read from 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.